All right, let's begin. Kabbalah and coffee. We are up to, we're in the middle of chapter 4 of Feminine Faith. The page number that we're on is 46. We're on page 46. You know what, that's not the, that's not the, huh? are we still, are we going backwards? Are we going backwards? No, you're going to pass the handout. I feel like we may have gotten up to 48 last time, but I, I'm kidding. All right. No, we didn't. We're still up to 46, right? Yeah, uh, yeah it was a dream. That's all that keeps on giving. All right. Let's, uh, okay, so page 46. Yeah, well, here's the deal. There's a lot of handouts here. That's what's going on. We got, we got the current chapter. We got the next chapter, just in case we break into the next chapter. And I got my astrological chart here, because we're going to dabble into astrology today. One day only. All right. Good stuff. So welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee, um, page forty-six. Let's uh, let's get everyone up to speed where we're, what we've been talking about, what we're doing, and where we're headed with this. Last week we spoke about the concept of change. How is it that we how is it that we change our selves? How do we really achieve change? I, I mentioned at the beginning of last week's class that at least in my opinion, in my experience, people that you know at a young age, and, or you know at any age really, and, and you see them you know, go through life and get older and wiser, a lot of times they stay the same. Their essential personality stays the same. There's a lot about us. The point is there's a lot about us that's hardwired. Who we are, it's how we, it's how we uh, react to situations, how we feel, our personalities. A lot of that is hardwired. At the same time, change is possible. There is a way... Oh, I think that's the old form. That's, that's, a, that's a dumb... No, 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 it's good. We just have... Uh, I got... Okay. So we have... So there's a, lot of, there, there's a part of us that's kind of stuck... In a certain way, you know, there's the way we're the way we're born, and the way that we're, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, designed, so to speak. And then there are ways in which we can change. And how does change how does change happen? So the way Judaism, especially Kabbalah, especially Hasidic philosophy, the way it explains change is that change happens in the mind. Change happens by what we put in front of our eyes, by what we think about, what we know, what we're meditating on perhaps. That changes the way we feel, which changes the way we behave and react. So that's, that's kind of the, the process and how this works. So, we spoke specifically last week about different negative emotions, like anger, or fear, or resentment. You have a natural reaction to something, you get angry. As something happens, your natural reaction is anger. Or something happens and you're afraid. Or something happens and you are resentful. Or you are jealous. All of these negative emotions... Negative reactions. Negative in the sense, not that, they're not, nece- not that they're not necessarily justifiable. Maybe they are justifiable. I can say, I have a good excuse to be angry. I have a good excuse to be... So the excuses are there. But the point is that these emotions are toxic for ourselves. Anger is toxic. Resentment is toxic. These are, these are toxic emotions. So how to get out of it? So we explained that the best way to get out of it is by thinking, by thinking differently. How do you think differently? So this is, the whole, this is the whole major part of our discourse, of, of the text, Feminine Faith, is explaining how everything comes from Hashem, and everything comes from God, and even when it comes 
to you through another human being, because another human being made the choice to deliver something negative into your lap. Nonetheless, ultimately, this too comes from Hashem. Now that person has chosen to be the conduit through which you receive it. So they have to face the music. Why should you be a negative channel? Why should they be a negative channel for a channel for negativity? So they have to face the music for being a negative channel. However, you and as the recipient, the, the, the faith is that this is coming from Hashem and there's all, everything only comes from Hashem anyway. There's only one source for everything. And therefore, there's the understanding that this too um, has, is, is meant for me to learn from, to grow from, and is for ultimately for my benefit. Now, that's a very difficult meditation, but that's the idea, um, that's the main idea of our discourse, which is recognizing that everything comes from Hashem, everything comes from one source, and that changes how we react, that changes, um, that has a profound impact on how we live our lives. All of that was how we began last week's class. And then what we did was we segued into chapter 4. Because chapter 4 is what I'll call the practical chapter. Chapter 3 is the theory, in a sense. It's like, theoretically, how should we react in situations? How should we think? How should we perceive the world and events that happen to us? That's all the theory. Chapter 4 is the practicality of it. The difference between theory and practice is that in practice, in practice, when things actually play out, there are additional challenges that come to us. And I'm going to explain that in a second. So here's, here's how it works. In theory, I know that everything comes from God. Or in theory, I believe that. Everything comes from Hashem. And Hashem is good, so everything has to be for my benefit. That's what I believe. But in practice, it's not so easy to feel that when the negative thing happens. It's not easy to, to, to feel that and to think that in a moment. I'm going to give you another uh, curveball here. So you know this truth, that everything comes from Hashem. Everything comes from God. And God is one, and God's oneness is pervasive, and nothing else exists other than God, and God is working through everything. Okay. So I know this to be true. So what happens later on, so I, I feel this truth, what happens later on when this idea is challenged, or when this idea is not convenient for me? For example, in a moment where I want to take credit for what I've done. Right? I want to take credit for what I've done. So now my theory comes in, so now there's a, now there's a, a contradiction in theories. Because, or in philosophies, right? Because one philosophy tells me that everything comes from Hashem. So if, if my meditation of philosophy that everything comes from Hashem is with regards to negative things happening for, through other people, right? That don't get upset because it's ultimately coming from Hashem and therefore, look, they'll have to face the music, but me, I'm going to rise above and recognize that this is a learning experience. Wonderful. But what happens when I do something and I'm successful? And so now my natural reaction is Pride. I'm, I feel very good about myself. I accomplished something. I say, wait a second, I, did I really accomplish this? Did I really accomplish this? Or, is this also part of Hashem's plan for me? Right? Certainly there's the idea of free choice, and I could have chosen not to do it, so my choice in doing it is, you know, I, I play a certain role, but at the end of the day, is it really my talents and abilities? Where do they come from? Right? Where does my life come from? Where do my uh, brains come from? Where does my uh, personality come from? 
Comes from me? I created myself? Who can say I created myself? So what happens is, now suddenly, what we, what we had, the truth that we were holding on to, which is the truth of that everything comes from Hashem, now it's being, it's being called into question because of my own feelings. Because I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel like I accomplished something. But can I really accomplish? Is it really me? And what does it say if I need to be humble my whole life? How painful is that? How painful? I can't take credit for anything. I have to be humble continuously. Aye, aye, aye. I don't get my name in lights. I don't get like, you know, on the Fox Theater starring whatever. Right? We're all trying to make a... Uh, not we're all, but... Yeah, we all, we all, I think we all like to feel good about ourselves. So how does this, you know, how does this play out? The point is that when things are theoretical and unchallenged, when theories exist in a vacuum or when beliefs exist in a vacuum, they're much easier. They're, they're, they're much easier to sustain because they're not being challenged in, in, in the day-to-day. The challenge comes when we're living the day-to-day and we're faced with either a real-time challenge or we're faced with our own success and the feelings that that gives us of accomplishment, pride, look what I did. Or the third challenge, again, one challenge is when the negative things happen and I have to actually put into practice my, my, faith, my faith system. That's number one. Number two is when good things happen and I'm challenged with feelings of, of pride. Number three, an arrogance, which is ego, which is self. By the way, God says... It's quoted by, I don't know where it's quoted, in one of the good, good Jewish books. Whether it's a Midrash or the Talmud or, or the Kabbalah. I think it's either the Midrash or the Talmud. It says that God says about an arrogant person, Ein ani ladr. Me and him cannot, cannot exist together. In other words, in the space of arrogance, God says, I can't be there. It's almost like the, we have the ability to push God away by our own ego. By, if we fill the space, it reminds me of the story that I've told many times in this class, where a, a certain uh, congregant was complaining to the rabbi and saying to his rabbi, and he's saying, everyone in, in the synagogue, everyone in the community steps on me. So the rabbi says, well, if you didn't spread yourself out everywhere, people would have, another, people would have elsewhere to walk, but they can't help but stepping on you because you're just, you're everywhere. Anyway, he didn't say it so negatively, but he said it in a nice way. But. In other words, and it's the same thing, forget about other people, let's talk about God now for a second. So the Medr says, or the Talmud says, but quoting God in a sense, that, this, that God says about arrogance, I cannot be there. There's no room for me, you're not giving room. You know, kli male enim enim a full vessel cannot receive. You have a vessel, you have a cup, fill to the top. Overflowing, so it can't take anything more. So, so how, you can't be receptive... So here's the point. Arrogance is one of the greatest dangers. So it's not only the, when the negative things happen, God forbid, when negative things happen to us, so our faith in God and our, our belief that everything has come from Hashem is challenged, it's when the good things happen to us. And when we can feel arrogant. So that's also putting God in, that's also putting our beliefs in peril. It's a very dangerous place. Because when we're, when we're full of pride, within, when we're full of ourselves, God is not in that space. That's the point, yeah. 
and having this discussion with my son about um, his music. Yeah. Know? So um, he's about this this idea that you're a vessel, and if you really look at people that are truly inspired and really almost on a savant in a savant type. It's it, it you know Hashem uses you as you need a vessel for something to pass through. Right, you got to be a conduit as opposed to. So it's a sort of a partnership, but but it, you know when you see people that are are really very unique in their inspiration, you do get the sense that they are just a vessel. Right, because they don't know. You ask them how do they do this, they go I don't know. It's easy, and you're like, <laughs> not easy for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Look, you know, the, the way Kabbalah explains creativity, as we've explained many times, Chachma, the power of Chachma, creative wisdom, is, is the, the prototype of creativity. That's creative wisdom is creativity. Chachma is all about, Chachma is associated with the power of Ma, which means what? The power of Bittel, the power of nothingness. The ultimate creativity is absence of self. The less present you are, the more creative you can be. This is what Kabbalah teaches. This is like the very first Kabbalistic energy of creation, Chachma, is the absence of self, which is the same as creativity. In the space of absence of self, in other words, in that vacuum, in that emptiness of self, there can be creativity. The more we're full of ourselves, the more we're just going to cycle back through the things that we already know. there's, There's no creativity. The more filled we are with self, and look what I've accomplished, and just self, the more stuck we are in our... Now, some people have you know, a smaller circle, some people have a wider circle, it doesn't make a difference. The point is, whatever your you know, box circle, whatever it is, whatever, whoever you are, if you're stuck in that, you're stuck in that. So, the challenge... You know, and and this, this text is all about feminine faith, and, and soon in chapter 5, we're going to get to the feminine aspect of this. But first we have to explain what faith is. Before we get to feminine faith, what is faith? Faith is recognizing that Hashem is everywhere. Hashem is everywhere. In the good stuff and the not so good stuff, it's all Hashem. So whether it's a challenging moment, it's Hashem. Ah, you came through somebody else, it's still Hashem. They chose to be a channel, that, but it's from Hashem. When the good stuff happens, it's also Hashem. So what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh says, Kabbalah says, Kabbalah teaches, Pharaoh says, the Nile is mine and I created myself. Pharaoh says, the Nile River, this is a quote, Li Ya'iri, the Nile is Li is mine, Ya'ar means river, the river, the Nile River is mine, Va'ani Asisani, and I created myself. I made myself. That's what he says. Think about it. All these... So, oh, he created the Nile, created himself. Ah, oh, Pharaoh. Pfft. And yet, we use the word all the time, self-made man. Self-made woman. We use these terms all the time. We can create the American dream. Who creates it? We create it. Through our... And again, I'm not minimizing the effort and the choices that we make. Of course we make effort and choices. But ultimately, everything comes from Hashem and all the, the ability, the strengths. We have, we can choose to derail, we can choose to push off, we can choose to... But there are certain things, and, and ultimately everything, not certain things, everything ultimately comes from Hashem. So, the danger and arrogance is the danger of completely blocking out Hashem and 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 
stepping into Pharaoh territory, which is saying that you know God doesn't exist at all. It's just me. It's just me and 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 my you know my whatever my my prowess. The third challenge, again, one challenge is when the negative stuff happens, we actually have to to to, to, to pull on our faith. Second challenge is when the good things happen. And we're tempted to take credit for the good things. Third challenge is when other people start being cynical around us. Cynicism. So we were inspired. We got. We feel confident, and we're studying, and we're we're feeling like I'm in a good place with my relationship with Hashem, and I'm feeling feeling this is true and this is real. And then a friend, a colleague, you know, whatever somebody says, you read a book. Nah. Don't get so excited. Don't get so excited. It's not real. It's or you think really Hashem was involved. Nah, God. Ugh, God. God is a crutch. Religion is a crutch for those, you know, that need It's you, it was them, it was him, it was her. It was random coincidence. What? God God was behind it? Or you really think that? Then suddenly it's the old cold water. And it says, I'm going to get your question in one second, I just want to finish this idea. This is Amalek. Not Amalek in Torah, biblical Amalek. It says when the Jews left Egypt, the first nation that battled with the Jewish people is the nation of Amalek. The Medrash relates and Rashi cites it in his commentary on the Torah. He likens this to a hot bath that every, no, one, no one can step into. Because it's too hot. Until you have one person who just says, I don't care, I'm going in, and that one person goes in and cools off the bath by taking, you know, the Amalek is all about cooling down the fire. Amalek, the numerical value of the letters Amalek, Ayin, Mem, let's do this. Ayin, Mem, Lamed, Kuf. Ayin is 70. Okay, someone keep a running tab. 70 is Ayin, Mem is 40, Lamed is 30, and Kuf is 100. What do we have? 240. 240. Is the same numerical value as the Hebrew word suffake. You know what suffake means? Doubt. What's the word suffake? Samach is 60. Hay is 80. And Kuf is 100. What does that equal? 240. Amalek is all about suffake. Amalek is suffake. Amalek is doubt. What does it mean? Doubt? Doubt means cynicism. Doubt says, oh, you really think, you really believe? Nah. Nah, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? Or, come on, really? And suddenly, what we thought we really believed in, suddenly now, we have doubt. Suddenly, we're doubting what we thought we knew, what we thought we believed in. It's the old peer pressure. This is the third challenge we face. First challenge is, the first two challenges are stuff that happens with us, either negative things or good things. Challenges or blessings. Each of them brings their own sort of challenge. The third challenge, and this is something that you can't prepare for. Because, right, the first two you can kind of gird yourself against. But the, the third one is somebody coming at you and somebody cooling you down. You're inspired and someone says, nah, don't, don't take this too seriously. That's something that's harder to prepare for because it's an external, it, it's... It's somebody else that's kind of, you know, giving you that doubt. So Amalek, that's why the Torah says that Amalek is a perpetual battle that has to be fought in every generation. It doesn't mean 
there's, there's a literal way to understand it, even though today we don't know who Amalek is, and there's no... Uh, but on a spiritual level, the way it's explained in Kabbalah, what does it mean to battle against Amalek, and to destroy Amalek, and to wipe out Amalek? It means that any time the cynicism creeps in, any time feelings of doubt, we have to battle that, we cannot let that linger. Because that has the ability to destroy all of the things that we've been working toward. It's something we have to be proactive against, to fight against, because otherwise it can just it can just cool off all of the inspiration we've been working on inspiring and working on studying and working on learning and building up, you know, it's kinda like you're ratcheting up the temperature here, 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 and then whoosh, cold water and it's gone. Do you all know the Jewish way to try out a pen is to write Amalek and blot it out. That's how you if you're a pen collector. Interesting. Write Amalek and then you And then you scratch it out. Interesting. I never knew that. Nice. I have to not go down to Staples and try out the... Uh, <laughs> so I was thinking that um, if, you, if, if, if overcoming the ego and being open to Hashem, yeah. you're going to have change. So you have to be careful not to have rigid um, definitions of who you are to be open to that. But if the people around you have defined you, it's just like the cold water. It's a very difficult challenge, which is why... Yeah, continue. So, that's why I think a lot of people have to leave their community. I was going to say that, yeah. That's exactly where I was... Yeah. I, I am an advocate, you know, not like... I'm not like writing op-eds about this, but I'm saying like people ask me in general. I'm a big advocate for... Because I know for myself. I'll explain what I'm saying. When I went away to yeshiva... I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I went away at 16 to London for a year. And then I went to Marston, New Jersey. Not as exotic as London, but it was still a very good yeshiva. But, I went, but it, the experience of going away to school was so transformative for me. And it's, it's literally a sense of a new start. You, know, no one, you have the freedom to define yourself as you truly believe, not trapped by anything else. And we're all trapped by various things. Some of them we've, you know, we've kind of set up our own traps. Some of them others have just pegged us based on, you know, our families and our upbringings and our communities. You know, we've just kind of assumed definitions. Again, some of that is some of that is from us. From but the the ability to to go and to really discover and then redefine who you are and maybe define who you are by not being defined at all and to constantly that is a very powerful thing. I will tell you, this is the very first mitzvah, this is the very first charge that Abraham is given. Lech lecha, leave. Me'artzacha, umimayladacha, umibesavicha. Leave your land, leave your birthplace, leave your father's house, and then you will attain greatness. Kabbalah explains, what, is it, what do all these three definitions mean? I mean literally, it means leave your, leave your community, leave your... But it also means leave your leave your behavioral patterns, leave your emotional react, uh, patterns, leave your intellectual patterns, leave all of that behind and discover who you truly are. And again, it's, there's, a, there's a literal component to it and a, and a, a more internal component, and, it, and they both work hand in hand. The literal interpretation, which is physically leave your house, and the spiritual interpretation, which is leave the way you think, the way you react, they're tied into each other. Because how can you... The external move, in a sense... But the physical move of location helps allow a person to 
be open in that way. Sometimes it takes a change of scenery to allow a person to be open to questioning the way they think, questioning the way they feel, questioning the way they behave. And again, this is, this is a very, uh, very fundamental idea that the definitions that we impose upon ourselves, that others impose upon us, are very limiting, very stifling. And the more we can get out of that, the better. And that is... Uh, and again, it's, there's a human benefit, but on a spiritual level, the benefit that we're talking about here is not being stuck in ourselves to the point that we can't see God, that we can't find God. And, and you're also an obstacle or a in someone's eye if you are judging and defining them all the time. It doesn't allow them to be spiritual. Right. And again, this ties into the third challenge that I'm saying, the challenge of others, you know, judging you or, or being cynical, all of these things, the challenge of, you know, somebody else, kind of like, not doing anything horrible, not, it's not, not a, I'm not talking about, the first challenge was if, if, if something bad happens to you, somebody does something bad to you. God forbid. Second one is, if there's a good thing that happens that you accomplish. The third thing is not, no one's doing anything bad, but they're just saying, really? They're just, you know, looking at you in a certain way, you're questioning a certain way, you're a little smirk, a little shrug, a little ah, like that, like you and your uh, faith again. Yeah. It also calls into question the whole concept of integrity, self-containment, relationship with Hashem privately versus community. Because as soon as you involve yourself in community at all, you're subject to distraction and you're, you're not right. hearing the voice anymore. But imagine a community of individuals that are all on the same page. That's, that's the ideal. Right. And the, that, well, it's hard to achieve. The also is if, you're, if you are feeling you're pr- very principled, you sometimes tend to attract people that are doubters and you try to change their... You know, it's a whole... It's, there's a lot... Listen, <laughs> there's, no sh- there's no shortage of challenges in all of this. The point is to understand the different sorts of challenges and gain tools in how to... And, and that's, that's really what we're getting into in chapter 4. The challenge here is that the Jewish people were all inspired. They had just experienced the exodus from Egypt. And it, it's, it's such a timely discu- discussion, I have to say, yeah, parenthetically, because this is what we're, we're reading about in, on, in, in the Torah on Shabbat. These are, we just started the book of Exodus uh, in synagogue yesterday, and we're going to go through the next um, three, or, three or four Torah portions are all about the slavery and the plagues and then ultimately the exodus and then the splitting of the sea. That's the next... I mean, this is what, what's going on on a, on a timely level um, in, the, uh, in synagogue and shul and uh, synagogues across, across the world are all reading the same, uh, the same portions of Torah. So what we're talking about here is when the Jews left Egypt and they had seen all of the miracles, they had seen all of the plagues and they had experienced the splitting of the sea, and then, and then later on they, got the, they received the Torah at Sinai, they were filled with such a faith and such a, a, a sense of truth that God is true, and this is, all of this is true. It's all true. And they knew it, and they sensed it, and they were, you know, if we want to use the example of the heat, they were, they were, they were burning, they were on fire, on a, a, a spiritual level. Then what happens is the sin of the golden calf. And we all question, how is that possible? How is it possible? We're going to give an explanation here, how it was possible. And the explanation is going to sound ridiculous. It's going to sound silly. 
I'll tell you the explanation. Here's the explanation. There was a mixed multitude, individuals that had joined the Jewish people uh, during the Exodus, Egyptians or folks from other, other nationalities. At the time of when Moses, as, we, as we've been discussing, when Moses was delayed in coming back down the mountain after, the, the, after he received the Torah, he was up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, when he was delayed, or when they, they miscalculated and they thought that he was delayed, so the, uh, the, the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude, said to the Jewish people, you should know that the truth is that it wasn't God that took you out of Egypt. It was the astrological sign of Taurus that was behind the Exodus. And the Taurus is a bull. And so therefore they said, let's make a golden calf. And that's the God. And when they made a golden calf, they said, oh, this is the God that took you out of Egypt. Does that make sense? How does that make sense? Sounds ridiculous. So you can say, so not if you believe in astrology, but what, they just experienced plagues, and they just experienced... They didn't experience. I mean, they saw the miracles, and they they saw the splitting of the sea, and they got the Torah at Sinai. And you're telling me that it's a golden calf? So they convinced the so so they made so they convinced them first, and then they made the golden calf. Yeah, you know the the timeline is not clear in this in this explanation as far as but that it seems like that's that's the way that this explanation is going. The question is how you how do you get how do you get convinced out of the answer is a simple and I mean, again let me just state the question clearly the question is how do you get convinced out of faith in God by saying oh no it was an astrological sign why is that any better and the answer is what we're talking about the the answer to this question is really what what, what we're talking about here is that faith in something that you can't see faith in something that is invisible faith in something faith right faith faith is so, even when it's strong and powerful, is so tenuous that cynicism and doubt and, oh no, it wasn't this, it was that, suddenly you're like, oh, well, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, maybe I was just on this, you know, faith trip and you know, i got to come down, back down to reality. What is the reality? In those times, it was astrology. Today, for some, it's also astrology. But for us today, maybe it's, uh, it's other things. Maybe it's... Um, Maybe it's nature. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's, uh, you know, accidents. Coincidences. Somebody says, oh, you really think that it was, it happened, it's a lesson, it's a message, the reason why that happened, that happened is to teach you something. Nah, it was all an accident. You're like, maybe it was. You're right. Maybe it was. The question is, how do you fall from such a high place? The answer is, the higher you are, the easier it is to fall. The, right? It only takes a little bit of water to put out a big fire. Or maybe it doesn't physically, but in this case it does. There's a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of coldness. Amalek. You know what Amalek is in Yiddish? Amalek Atzaitin. You know what that word means? You know what that phrase means? Amalek Atzaitin. You know what that means? Amalek Atzaitin means, it means back in the old days. Amalek Atzaitin back in the day. That's also Amalek. Saying, back in the day, yeah, it was good, it was right. It's the coldness. It's the Kaltkeit. It says Amalek is... Why is Amalek cold? Oh, Asher Karcha Baderach. It says Asher Karcha Baderach. So it says... What, who's Amalek? So the Torah says, Amalek Karcha Baderach attacked you on the way. 
But karacha can also be translated as ice. Karach is ice. They cooled you on the way. You were excited. That's where the whole bath and the, uh, 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 interpretation comes from. Because the word karacha has a dual interpretation. It means attacked, confronted along the way, but it also means cooled off. Frost. They, they iced you. It, to ice, it's just, a, just a, little bit, a little bit of ice. Cools off, destroys the whole thing. So as, uh, the reason why I'm, I'm using this intro is because as we go through four, and I'm, we're going to get into the astrology, we're going to get into all the nitty-gritty, I want to give you this overview. That as we get into this explanation, say, oh, they convinced them out of God, faith in God, by telling them that it was the bull that did it. You tell me, bull. You're going to tell me, what? It, it, they got them out of the thing because they said it was a Taurus, it was a bull. Come on. The answer is, hold on. It's that easy. It's that easy to get out of a place of inspiration by a little bit of coldness and saying, nah, it wasn't that, it was that, and it's done. Yeah. Astrology has been around for a long time. I want to get into. I, I don't. I, the short answer is I don't know the uh, the origins of it, but I will tell you in Torah where we find origins of it within Torah, and it's very very ancient. From uh, within 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 Torah and within Jewish history, it's very, it goes back to the beginning to Abraham. But I'll, we'll get there in a second. I'm going to give a little bit of an overview of that from a Jewish perspective. But it seems to me also that faith without having that faith tested. They call that blind faith, you know. So blind, yep. without the the, it, it seems like faith is something that continually needs to be renewed by testing, right. by doubt being injected into the situation. And that's exactly what I said before that a faith, or I use the word philosophy, belief in God, in a vacuum, of course it's strong because it hasn't been tested. Right. Of course I believe that everything is for the good until something negative happens, and it's like, oh, why is this happening? Right? So, of course, there's a benefit to test for faith being tested and the challenges, etc. But at the end of the day, when that happens, there is a profound challenge. And it becomes very difficult. You know, how do you, how do you work with this? Whether it's in any of the three areas that I mentioned, it becomes profoundly challenging. Now, you're right. With the challenge is a benefit. That's true with every challenge. Every challenge, the flip side you know, of the coin with the challenge is, is a great opportunity for growth in that area. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm you with know, you, brother. Like every moment, I mean, life gets in your face. And so I think that's part of our arrogance that we've got to go seek new challenges to, to test it. Right. Just stay conscious in each moment and you'll be challenged plenty. I, the, the best analogy that I have for this, and, and in general this concept, I've, I've told the story before, is the escalator moving down. I told you the story, right? I was on a train. You remember the story? Ah, it's a, good, it's a great story. I was in... Studying in Jersey, I was maybe 18, and we were going into New York for Shabbos. You know, we had it like once a month, I think we had a Shabbos, you know, off. We'd go into Cronites and, you know, whatever, hang out. So I took the train, I don't know how I did this, probably got the train from Newark and then to, I don't know, wherever it was. I got, I got the train somewhere, ended up in, I think, where does it go, to Penn Station, 42nd, yeah, because it's 42nd. So I'm, I'm in Penn Station. I have to change now out of the train, the New Jersey Trans or whatever it is. And I have to take now, I have to get onto the subway line to get into whatever. So I get off the train. It's Arab Shabbos. It's Friday afternoon. Friday early afternoon, like 1 o'clock. And get off the train with friends. I start heading on the, uh, the up escalator. And I realize, remember this, sir? I realize I left my suit hanging 
on a suit bag, like and on the on the railing in New Jersey Transit. And I'm like, oh great, that's my suit. It's like as a yeshiva student, how many suits do you have already? One suit, maybe. If you're lucky, my Shabbos suit. It's like, oh no. It's like, I look down and there's like just you know I'm like halfway up and there's like just like a million people, I'm like just not a million, but you know people on the escalator it's moving up and I'm like I gotta get down if I go if I wait till I get to the top and then take the one down I'm like there's no way I'm making it so it was like literally out of a movie it's like everything slows down and it's like no and I'm like just climbing just running down this. it's very difficult to actually go against let's flip it around let's flip it around so did you make it? I made it yeah oh it turns out I was gonna stay there for like half an hour it wasn't in any rush I'm like running I'm like on it I'm like just made it and then I'm like okay why is nothing happening and then I'm like I walk off I turn around still there I'm like go up I look around hmm. oh, I made it <laughs> plenty of time anyway that was my story so here's the deal the way I imagine an escalator let's do the other way escalator coming down does this work? yeah absolutely yeah, yeah this works and imagine the escalator coming down the down escalator and you're trying to get up so you get on. So you, you climb two steps. Oh, I climbed two steps. Baruch Hashem. Thank God I climbed two steps. Let me relax. Where are you now? Back at the bottom. But what happened? I climbed two steps. What happened? You stop climbing. The moment you stop climbing, it pulls you back down. This is true in life. You know, you, you ever, if we're not if we're not progressing, we're regressing. For that's all cliches, but it's true. The moment we stop climbing upward. We naturally backslide. There's no concept. Judaism is, talks about this extensively in, in, in philosophical works and Kabbalistic works, Hasidic works. There's no, there is never the. Uh, it's it's never true that we can just remain stagnant and be okay. We can remain where we are and things will be okay. If we're not moving forward, we're we're moving backwards. Vahabareik ein boy mayim. It says when they threw the, the brothers through Joseph into the pit, the Torah describes the pit, the pit was empty, there was no water in it. They didn't throw them into a well with a pit with water, they threw them into an empty pit. All the commentators ask the question, if the Torah tells us that the bar is raked, the bar is empty, why do you have to tell me it doesn't have water? I know it has no water. It's empty, right? It's an empty pit, it has no water. Alright, wonderful, why are we being redundant today? Bar, if, the pit, if the pit is empty, of course it... So the Talmud says, what is the meaning of it? Vahabareik, Eimbaimaimah means the pit was empty, it had no water. But what did it have? It had snakes and scorpions. The Torah is saying it wasn't a purely empty pit. The pit was empty only of water, but it had snakes and scorpions. Say the Hasidic masters. The same thing is true with the mind. Torah is compared to water. If the mind is empty and it has no water, it's not just empty. There will be snakes and scorpions in the mind. In other words, there will be negative things in the mind. If we don't fill the mind with positive things, if we don't, fill the, if we don't study Torah, we don't fill the mind with, with good things, it's not like, okay, my mind is just neutral. I'm just, you know, just, it's just going to be. It's going to get negative thoughts. It's going to get negative. It's going to become a, a, a place of snakes and scorpions. It's going to be a negative place. We have to constantly fill our minds with positive, holy, uplifting things. Constantly a challenge. Yeah? But I would imagine, in my mind, going up a down escalator was much harder 
not that what you did wasn't a feat in itself. Because <laughs> you don't have gravity, right. Well, it's just, it's just what, what Marnie said. It's just harder, I think, to go up a down escalator rather than to go down an up escalator. If you can I'm, with, no, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, listen, it's definitely challenging. But the point is that we have to be active and proactive. Otherwise, the alternative is not just stagnation. It's not just, okay, I'm, I'm just relaxing. The alternative is not just neutrality. The alternative is negativity. This is true. Our, so here's the point. When we're inspired, here's the point. This is, this is where we're getting with this. The fact that the heir of Rav, the mixed multitude, can convince the Jews into a golden calf means only one thing. That they weren't being proactive in their faith. They weren't being active. They weren't being actively filled with a sense of Hashem is with us, Hashem is with us. Because if they were filled with that, right? Hashem is with us, so Moses delayed, no problem. God will take care of it. Oh, the astrological sign of Taurus. What are you talking about? We believe in God. If there's a stagnation, there's a sense of comfort, like, okay, I've arrived, I get it now, then that leaves the individual and the mind and the heart open to the challenges, the doubt, etc. Which is, again, why the battle against Amalek is an active, perpetual battle. We always have to be on the, we always have to be pushing ourselves forward with the understanding that the moment we don't, we're leaving ourselves open, susceptible to the negative energy. Does this make sense? Something about it doesn't make sense to me. Does not? Yeah. I'll tell you what doesn't make sense. What about, what about if you actually get to a point... Um, where you're experiencing moments of serenity and balance and calm and you sort of feel like things are okay. And what, the, the paradigm that you're describing means that you have to be eternally vigilant because that may be a false state. I, I'll tell you like this. There is somebody to experience serenity and that calm and tranquility. It's a, it's a great place to be in, but it leaves the person vulnerable to an unexpected challenge that can take the person down. There's the, the, if you're not on edge... It's kind of like Jewish paranoia. I mean, this is it's a little... No, but not in a negative sense. No, this is in a positive. The point is always to grow. And serenity is good, but serenity only means that now I've, I've attained something. Now, how am I going to take it to the next level? Right? How am I going to constantly challenge myself and take it, take it further? So does it mean constant restlessness? Maybe. But I'll tell you what Kabbalah says about the burning bush since you asked. Rabbi, <laughs> 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 I, I see that, you know, as what Doris is saying is that, you know, you eat and you feel calm and full, but you have to keep eating again. Uh, but maybe Doris is saying, but you, give, it a, give it a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. What I'm saying. Right. You have Shabbos and then you got to get back into it. Right. But here's 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 the way Kabbalah explains the burning bush. Why does God appear to? Says we read it yesterday in the Torah. So Moses is shepherding. He's he's out of Egypt. He had a runaway. What? He's shepherding in Midian, and he sees this sight, the burning bush. So the Torah describes it. He sees the site. There's, the bush is burning and it's not being consumed. It's burning, but it's actually not burning down. It's, it's like a weird... 
And so God appears. So the question, and, and God appears to him from that place and says, uh, "I want you to take the Jewish people out. I want you to tell Pharaoh, let my people go." So the question is asked: Why? Why did? Why does God appear in a burning bush, thorn bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed? Like, what's the message over there? One explanation. Many different ways to understand that. One interpretation that that I that I that I like that I saw is that the there are certain people who are on fire, and then the fire consumes in a good way. In other words, they're on fire, and they feel a sense of accomplishment, and the fire is gone. It burned up. In other words, it did a job. They were on fire, and it's good. And then certain people are always on fire. Because they're never satisfied. They never feel like they get... It's never being consumed in the sense of it's always burning, and there's still more to burn. You understand the difference? One is burning, and eventually comes to an end. That's the, the, it was consumed, it was done, it burned, it was the experience, and I was, I was inspired, and now I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a good place. The other way is, I'm constantly on fire, constantly on fire, and I'm never, there's never the sense of, I don't have the right words for it, but there's never the sense of, uh, of burning down, of consumption, consumption here would mean the sense of satisfaction, there's never the sense of, it's, it's consuming me, it's more, it's, there's always more to, to explore, there's always, there's always a drive. And so that, and, and so the message is that that's where God's message to Moses, the message to us is that that's where He's found. God is found in the experience of always, always striving for more. A, a heart that's look. The Kutzker Rebbe said that there's nothing as whole as a broken heart. So again, does that mean we have to be miserable? I don't know. Maybe it does. But the point is that there's there's value in serenity and satisfaction and complacency and, and being in a good place, plateauing. But then. The challenge is not, not that that's an evil thing, but, the cha- but how am I going to challenge myself further? How am I going to stay, you know, stay burning? You know, make sure that I'm not just consumed up and now, I'm, now it's done, now the fire is gone. Because right? the moment there's nothing left to consume, the fire disappears. So how do I make sure that the fire is maintained? How do I make sure that, that the burning bush is still not being consumed? Hence retirement is not a Jewish concept. That's exactly it. Yeah. I, will, I will tell you something else. This was a major debate between the Alter Rebbe and the Misnagdim, those who opposed. Alter Rebbe was the founder of Chabad. There was a big debate in Vilna or Minsk, one of the big cities, strongholds of the Misnagdim, of the, those who opposed the Hasidic movement. They were all about Talmudic study and the scholars, and the, the Alter Rebbe was trying to explain the value of the simple Jew. The simple, non-sophisticated, the simple Jew that Davins that does, does whatever they know how to do. He said the difference is between those who are satisfied and content, like, I'm a Torah scholar, so I got everything, look, I'm, I'm, I've arrived, versus the one who has always a drive, because they don't know, because they don't have a sense of contentment, because they don't, because they don't, you know, they don't have that, uh, they don't have, you know, uh, I studied the whole Talmud, all, the whole Shas, I have it, you know, memorized. They, so there's always a striving, there's always, and there's always a sense of, I, there's more to accomplish. And he said, that's where, the fi- that's where the true beauty lies. But surely Hashem exists on a beach in Tahiti where I plan to retire. He's got to be there, able to communicate. But Doris, you would go there and you would teach music. To that's teach. exactly, you would find the challenge. Listen, we know that life exists in the space of, of activity. That's... So I've been wrestling with this question for a while, and it ties into all yeah. these themes today. Um, which is the way that we learn. I mean, we're all here on a Sunday morning and we're discussing this. And my brother-in-law said something to me a couple weeks ago about tennis. Um, he, um, 
he hadn't been playing a whole lot, but he'd been watching these online videos, and he said the more he watched these videos, but the less he played, the worse his game got. Interesting. And I because I was thinking I, more about it and everything. Right, because I feel this way a lot about my spiritual development. Because coming to uh, a Kabbalah class on a Sunday morning or other things that I may do is actually very comforting and very easy. The environment is very easy. The people, the lessons, I like it. You know what I mean? But I learn a lot better in a much more challenging environment, and yet it doesn't seem like there's anyone who teaches spirituality in that type of environment. In the trenches. Right, exactly. And then one thing I like about Chabad is you guys go out there. You know, you're one of the only Jewish groups that I know of that goes out in the world and says, make our own, you know, whatever. So often the synagogue's already been there, and they're just perpetuating whatever's been around for a while, and they've already got their group. You know, so that's the thing that I wrestle with, because I sometimes feel like I don't really grow very much spiritually by being in this sort of thing. It's just, oh, this is great, and then I go back to being who I am out there. Right. That's, that's the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is taking in whatever, whatever, you know, the challenge is getting out there and playing tennis. Right. you got to play tennis. Mm-hmm. we got to play tennis. Look, this is exactly what we're, I mean, it, it ties into what we're talking about. The idea is that the faith that we spoke about in chapter 3 is the theory. In chapter 4 we're dealing with now you're at the foot of Mount Sinai and you're waiting for Moses and he's delayed. Now you're in the trenches. Everyone's panicking. Where's Moses? Where's Moses? And the air arrived. The mixed multitude says, oh, where's Moses? Don't worry about Moses. It was all the, the astrological signs that were doing it anyway. Don't worry about that. And now your faith is challenged real time. That's when, that's when, that, that, and that's when the challenge happens. But we need to have, we need to know the right things so that when the challenge comes, we're able to respond in a, in a proper way. But you're right. The, the major growth in life happens when the challenge is hit, when, you, when you're living it. And again, the challenge, and, and the question is, will what we, will the, the, the stuff that we learn actually play out in real life when we're dealing with the challenges? And that's something that we've got we to gotta integrate for ourselves. Listen, cabal and coffee in the trenches. We gotta, we gotta make that happen. You know, we gotta. That's, but that's that, that's what we have to do. You know, when it plays out, you know, I, the the way that I've explained it in the past is like this: Judaism in the synagogue. Just we have to be careful with the words here. But Judaism in the synagogue is more like spirituality, or you can find spirituality in the synagogue, but you find God in the boardroom. You find God in the bedroom. You find God in all of these spaces. In other words, where do you find God? You find God in real life. You find the theories and the spirituality and the teachings and the good feelings. I mean, this is what you're saying. You find all of those things in the safe environments, but when it plays out, that's when you can actually connect. You know, this is, the, this is a concept that we've, expl- we've explored at depth before. The difference between spirituality and God, godliness. The difference between light and essence. You have the light, the, the revelation of something, but then you have the thing itself. The connection with God Himself. That happens when it plays out. In other words, I'm going to give you an example. So, we can learn about how, you know, this concept, how God is everywhere, and God, everything comes from Hashem, and all that is fine and true. And then, we're working... And there's a business deal that comes our way. And there's a great opportunity to make a lot of money. But it means that we're not, we, don't, we, we can't be so honest and so truthful. But it's a lot of money. 
And I can use the money for so many good things. The question is, does God exist in that space or does God not exist in that space? Right? Do If God is everywhere and God is... Right? So it, will God even be in this space? Which is why... And again, this is not... This is not a, the point is... This course, Money Matters, is exactly the same thing. So you say, Money Matters is a course on Jewish, Jewish business ethics. All right, either it's interesting or it's not interesting to me. Here's the point. Something like this is, how thing, is explaining how all of this plays out in real life. How does it play out in real life where there's no disconnect? How does faith right, and Kabbalah, Judaism, right, mitzvahs, how do they all play out in the world of business? How does it play out in real life? Not in the synagogue. In the synagogue, it's easy. Judaism is easy in the synagogue. Right? You study, you learn, you do mitzvahs. Yeah, it's, it's easy. How does it play out in real life? How does it play out in parenting? How does it play out in relationships? How does it play out in, in real time? That's, that's, where, that's the purpose of it. The Talmud asked the question, what is greater? Torah study? Uh, Talmud or Misa? What's greater? Study or action? The Talmud answers, study is greater because it leads to action. And action is the main thing. Talmud answers both. <laughs> study is primary. It's a Jewish answer if you ever heard, right? <laughs> study, is, study is primary because study leads to action. Because if you don't study, then how are you going to know how to behave in a parade? You're not going to act. But what's the main thing? The main thing is the action. Study, though, includes both advantages. Because study, you're studying Torah, and it's going to lead to action, which, and the action is the main thing. So study kind of has a little bit of both. Action is just the action. But the main thing is the action. So you're right. The main thing is the action. The main thing is grabbing the racket and playing tennis. And, and facing the challenges, and facing the doubts, and, 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 and pulling on whatever strength you can, and then coming back and studying more, and then going back out there. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, what you just said makes me think of how I look at Ed's question. Yeah. You know, sitting here seems like practice and study, but if you if, if you take the way we behave here, not just the what, what we're learning, but the openness, the fact, you know, the listening, the fact that it's a respectful environment, when you get into some other setting and there are greater challenges, people aren't, you know, the stakes seem higher. Right. They're not, but they seem higher. You just, I, I try to say, well, what would I do if I were sitting here? You know, what would it be like if you yep. applied what you learn here or other... You know, You're saying not only learn, but experience here right. the way in. Other, in. Like right. if you, if, if, suppose the other person were sitting across the table in whatever spiritual fellowship you're in. How would you treat them? What would you, you know, how would you right. behave? I like that. I like that. Make sense? <laughs> yeah. And also, it's a way of not tuning into your own. I mean, if you make it cerebral, like he's analyzing everything he's doing. Right. You've got to just trust your body to do the right thing. I think the main thing is just to get out there. And now I'm with you. Like, if you overthink, well, yeah. Uh, okay, let's pass this around. Let's get into let's get into the conclusion of chapter four, second half of chapter four.
Exciting conclusion. It could have been a golden scorpion. That would have been more complex, right? Yeah. I will tell you that the. Uh, um, well, that's a different month. That's Cheshrin. Scorpio is Cheshrin, um, which we're going to see in a second in this chart. And some of you are, are familiar with this chart from the presentation that I did on Kabbalah and astrology, or Judaism and astrology, the Kabbalistic astrological chart. Um, Pat, um, Heather, did you get one? You got one? Okay, great. All right, so this is the Kabbalistic astrological chart. The, as you see here, you have the little icon with the signs, um, the Jewish month, the signs that are associated with the Jewish month, and there's a Hebrew letter that's associated with each sign, there's a tribe, and there's a, an attribute to correct. In other words, every sign, every month, has a certain part of our personality, our being, that we're meant to correct and improve on. We don't really have time to explore this extensively. But I want to point out a few things. First of all, history of um, astrology in Judaism and Torah uh, discussion, Torah discourse. Abraham says to God, God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you with a son. Abraham says to God, I've looked in my stars, the measure says this, I looked in my stars and the stars tell me that I cannot have a child with with, uh, with, with Sarah, with Sarah, Sarai. So, God says to Abraham, I'm going to change your names. So, in other words, Sarai can't have a child, but Sarah can, Sarah can. That's what he says. So here we have, and that, that's the end of it. So there is, so, huh? That, so this is one source, one place where we find astrology mentioned in, uh, in Torah and in, in, in Jewish thought. Another time is with the story of Moses, Moses' birth. Moses is born, and sorry, before Moses is born, the Torah tells us that there was a decree where the Pharaoh said to, to the Egyptians that any boy that's born has to be thrown into the Nile River. Right? Death by Nile. And why? Because they saw that the, the Savior of the Jewish people, his downfall would happen through water. And so they figured, alright, and they saw that he was being born on that day. So on that day, the Pharaoh's astrologer said to him, any boy that's born today has to be thrown into the Nile River because that's what the stars say, that the downfall is going to be by water and we've got to make this happen. So Moses ends up in the water, but he ends up in a basket, ironically enough called the Moses basket. Joke. And, <laughs> and right, Moses is in a basket in the water and he survives. Years later, he strikes the rock that produced water and that was his downfall why he didn't end up in the land of Israel, why he died in the desert before he, because he hit the rock to produce water, so that was his downfall. So, but again, we see the idea of astrology mentioned in conjunction with Torah stories and within, uh, with biblical figures with Moses, which tells us something powerful that number one, the stars do have a lot to tell us. But number two, it's very difficult to decipher the message of the stars. This is the Jewish perspective on it. Number one, the stars do have a lot to tell us. But number two, it's very difficult to decipher what exactly the stars' meaning is. Right? If you see, and again, I'm not saying that the that you know the horoscope or whatever that's officially astrological that those things are legit those things could be made up but if somebody was really able to consult the stars and really understand them 
or really, really able to, to see what's in there. There would still be a challenge of understanding how it plays out and what it means, and how to really translate the information to, into a practical message. That's number one. At the same time, the Talmud says that Yisrael, that there's no that that we are not under the stars. In other words, that even if the stars say that something is going to happen or should happen or will happen or might happen, it can be changed through prayer to Hashem. Because the stars are just, as we've been explaining in this text, the stars are just a tool that God uses. So the stars are just a tool, but they're by no means the source of the blessing or otherwise. So if you want to change what you see, so pray to God. So in that case, why consult the stars in the first place? If you want something, pray to God. Right? If you want something different, change your behavior. Right? Which affects on a cosmic level what's going to happen. So the point is, you, we don't need to consult the stars. We just need to, to, to work on our own behavior and to connect with Hashem. But, but, that being said, the stars do have something to them. There is something in the stars. Not that it's their own power, but it's, uh, it's, it's what God is delivering to us. The example that we use in this class is the example of a pitcher. right? So the pitcher decides which pitch he's going to throw. Throws the pitch. The batter looks at the hand of the pitcher and the way the ball comes out of the hand. The batter sees what kind of pitch. Fastball, curveball, slider, split finger, whatever. The batter, a good batter can see what pitch is coming or where to swing. By no means is the hand that which decides the pitch. It started in the pitcher's brain, the pitcher's mind. The pitcher decides what pitch to throw. The hand is just the delivery mechanism with which it comes down. So the stars are the delivery mechanism. The stars are the delivery mechanism for the blessing from on high. So you can look in the stars and see which blessing is coming down. But by no means does it come from the stars. It's coming through the stars. Good. Egypt. It says in, the, it says in uh, Jewish books, Egypt had many idols. Egypt worshipped many Egyptians as a, as, as a people. He worshipped many things, including, including the Lamb. Which is why the Torah tells us, which is why the Torah tells us, that God tells the Jewish people to offer the Paschal Lamb. God says, Karban Pesach, Paschal Lamb, before, right before the Exodus. On the 10th day of Nisan, they were, the Exodus happened on the 15th. The night, of the, 14th, the night of the 15th into the day of the 15th. God says, on the 10th day of the month, take a lamb, tie it to your bed. Lamb, sheep, take a lamb, tie it to your bed. Bed post, and keep it there for four days. After the fourth day, or on the fourth day, on the fourteenth of the month of Nisan, you're gonna you're gonna uh, um, you're gonna prepare the uh, the Paschal lamb, and you're gonna eat it that night. And right after that is gonna be the Exodus. The Jews were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because the Egyptians deified the lamb. They deified that type of that type of animal. So they were afraid. But they're gonna take the God, the deity, one of the deities of the Egyptians. And the point was yet to break that hold of the Egyptians over the Jewish psyche. If you're able to take the God, the stronghold of your oppressor, and you're able to break that, right, to, in a sense to demonstrate that you don't, this doesn't have any power over you on the contrary, you have power over it. They ate the animals. It's not like they, they just destroy the animal. They ate the animal. But the point is, the God of the Egyptians, that for themselves broke 
the stronghold that the Egyptians had over them, and also gave a message to the Egyptians that your God, how powerful is your God if it's being tied to a bedpost and being eaten that night. The point is, though, that the Egyptians deified this animal. The sign of the month of Nisan, when the Exodus happened, is Ares. Ares is, what is it? What kind of animal is it? It's a ram. It's a ram. What is the difference between a ram and a lamb? Huh? The lamb age. Lamb is under one year of age, and a ram is an adult male lamb. Adult male, that, that family, the adult male is called the ram, and the young, the young version of the animal is called the lamb. It's the same animal. Okay? That's the sign of the month of Nisan. The sign is because that was the Egyptian god, and that was the sacrifice, and that was not the sacrifice. The Paschal lamb that they ate was a symbol of breaking that hold, that stronghold that they had. Which led to the Exodus. Alright, look at the next month, the month of Er. The month of Er, the sign for Er, is the Taurus, which is the bull. A bull is an adult cow. Or, cow, or is a male, right? A bull is a male cow, right? The young cow is a calf. So what happens? The heir of Rav, the mixed multitude, says to the Jewish people, they say, oh, look what happened. Egypt, the, Egypt was destroyed. Egypt uh, had plagues and the exodus. And they were, all of that was because they were warring. The stars were battling amongst themselves. The, the star of Taurus, the sign of Taurus, was battling the sign of Aries. And that's why the Lamb fell. Not because God let you out of Egypt. Not because God uh, sent plagues and took you out. It's because the bull was victorious over the ram. That's what they said. And we find, so because the neighboring stars, they could, you know, they're turf wars. You know, one star wants to battle the other star. So they were battling each other. Huh? Star Wars. Star Wars. There you go. Even better. Star Wars. They were battling each other. And Taurus was victorious over Ares. But who's, who's the god in the sky? Or who, God with the Lord? Who's the power? The power is Taurus. The power is the bull. Is that family. Oh, so we've got to create a golden calf to give thanks and to worship the true power. What's the true power? The calf, the bull. Over the lamb, the sheep, the ram. That's what happened. We're going to read this inside, yeah. And because uh, Taurus is heavy into thought, they were probably pretty persuasive in their arguments. Yeah, they were persuasive. Yeah, and, and as you see, that the attribute to correct, every month has a different attribute. So, right, Nisan is speech, which is why a Passover is all about speech. Teach your children, speak the Haggadah, the, the retelling of the story. But E.R. Taurus is about thought. And I'm sure they were, very, they were very persuasive with their arguments and with, their, you know, with the way of thinking. But the, the idea of correcting the attribute means that you can think the wrong way. It's also perhaps connected to this idea. The idea that you've got to correct because your thinking might be skewed. Right? Your thinking is, oh... What is my salvation? The uh, neighboring constellation. Oh, that's what did it. So, the, so that was the argument. That was the persuasion. And again, it sounds silly. It sounds silly. Not, number one, not if you believe in astrology. And number two, not if we look at our own lives. Look at our own lives. We say, oh, I believed in God until somebody told me that I shouldn't believe in God. Or until I realized, oh, maybe it wasn't God. It was 
you know, something else. Whatever force, fill in the blank. Whatever force that is that you're filling in the blank, that is the equivalent of this argument saying, no, it's not Aries, it was Taurus, and that's, I have a good explanation. Right? Let's take a look. Let's read this inside. All right, David, take it away. Four, right on the bottom. There are 12 constellations. There are 12 constellations in the sky, and the ruling constellation of Egypt is Aries, as Moses told Pharaoh. Could we sacrifice the sacred animal of the Egyptians before their very eyes? Let me explain this quote, this statement of Moses to Pharaoh. Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go so, so that they... You, guys, you have it? You have it in the... In the it's, it should be all the way at the end. 49. Top of 49. Yeah, top 48, 49. You don't have, you don't have a copy of it? All right, so... Okay, so uh, buddy up if you can. Thanks. Okay, look, look what's going on here. Moses tells Pharaoh at the beginning, let my people go. Right? God said, let my people go so that they may serve me, God, on the mountain. So, so Pharaoh says, oh, you want to serve God? Serve Him here in Egypt. Like, why do you need to leave Egypt? Why, why should I... You want to serve God? You want to offer sacrifices? Fine, do it here. Like, why do you have to leave Egypt? So Moses says to Pharaoh, counter-argument, what? Could we sacrifice the sacred animal of Egyptians before their very eyes? In other words, part of the sacrifice is going to be lambs. Right? The family of, of animal known as the lamb or the ram. So that's part of the sacrifice. So how can we be in Egypt and sacrifice this animal as part of our service of Hashem? The Egyptians are going to be all up in arms. You know it's not going to work. So we have to let us go so that we can serve Hashem the way we want to. The point of all of this is the, the idea that that was a deity in Egypt. Continue. Now, the real purpose of the Passover offering was that the Jews should slaughter the sheep with all of its various legal stipulations, such as do not break any of its bones and do not eat it raw or cooked in water, but only roast it over a fire, including its head over its legs and internal organs to completely invalidate the distinct vitality of the God of Egypt, the constellation of Aries. So the Passover, the Paschal lamb or sheep, it was, it was prepared in a certain way, whole, roasted, and they ate the meat. Obviously. The point is, it was done in a way that it should invalidate the, uh, the God of Aries. To demonstrate, as I said before, to, to kind of break the stronghold that the Egyptians had over the Jewish people. Continue. For the same reason in the story of Joseph and his brothers, the Torah states, because the Egyptians were unable to eat with the Hebrews, as the Hebrews dined on sheep. It says that when Joseph was eating with his brothers, the Egyptians were unable to eat with them, because they were eating, uh, they were eating things that, they, that they, they were able to eat, that they enjoyed eating. And the Egyptians were unable to eat that. That was their deity, it was their God. Okay, the point is that Ares, the lamb, the sheep, the ram, all of that, it was in a family of animals that the Egyptians deified, assigned with the constellation of Egypt. That was their constellation. That's why they felt an affinity or they felt a servitude toward that because that was their constellation. That was their star. We said before in the text that every nation has a star that it is under. Every nation receives its vitality through a star, through a constellation. Egypt receives its vitality through Aries. So they felt an affinity. They felt, not an affinity. Affinity is a wrong word. They felt a servitude they felt like they were subjugated to that force. They were under that star. Ah, that's where it's coming from. That's where the blessing is coming from. That's what they served. Continue. But the mixed multitude used cunning, declaring to the Jews that the constellation Taurus, the bull, had battled the constellation of Aries, the sheep, and prevailed over it. We find this idea in the book of Daniel, and this is the sort of thing they argued that had taken place in Egypt. 
proving that the constellations are the ones who manage the earth. So they said, ah, oh, you think it's God and not constellations because God beat the constellation of Egypt? No, it wasn't God who destroyed the constellation, the power, the God, the deity of the constellation of Egypt. There was another constellation that beat that constellation. It was interconstellation battling. Right? It was Star Wars. It wasn't God, right? Who destroyed, the, broke, the, broke the deity of Egypt, which was their constellation, which played itself out in the animal, the respect of the animals, or the deification of the animals. It wasn't God who did that. It was another star who did that. Right? It wasn't God who gave you that. that, that it was another natural thing, phenomenon that, again, use your own imagination, your own, you know, your own experience to fill in the blanks and how this plays out. Where we think like, oh my gosh, wow, this is amazing. This is, you know, I've, I'm, I'm experiencing something higher, a presence of Hashem. And then, you know, later on, we're like, was it really Hashem or was it something else that's here? Right? Yeah, I, thought it was, I thought it was something higher, but maybe it's just something else, another force that kind of changed things here. That's what they said. And again, it sounds ludicrous, perhaps, maybe, how could, but first of all, if you're following astrology, it's not so ludicrous, because that's, that's, that's the world that you're in, and number two, don't, don't get caught up in the stars, and in the, the specific, the point is, that the, that, that they're, that, the argument that they that they leveled in this situation was it's not it's nothing higher it's all in the realm of the world it's nothing higher outside of the world it's nothing supernatural god has bigger things to, to worry about or god is not getting involved with you and egypt and uh, and seas and plagues god is not there what who did it it was the stars the stars are involved it's not god and they cited even the book of... Now, okay, this idea is in the book of Daniel. Obviously, the book of Daniel was not written yet. But the point is that it does... I right, can't cite something that hasn't been written. But the point is the book of Daniel, it says, Daniel says that he was standing there. He was... Uh, I forgot where it was, by the water or something. He was standing there and suddenly a, a vision appeared to him. And the others with him didn't see the vision, but he saw the vision. But the others were afraid and they ran away. And it, he sees this vision. It is the angel of uh, Bavel, Babylonia. And the angel of, of Babylonia is talking about the various things and, and talking about battles that he's having with the angel of Persia and the angel of other, of Greece. There's these there's these angelic battles that represent countries. So angels, we said, are on the same plane as constellations. Angel, constellation, every nation has its, has its angel or constellation that's above it. The point is that there is, a, there is a source, there is a concept of warring constellations or angels. So the mixed multitude said, simply what happened was Egypt was destroyed. No one's arguing that. But it wasn't God who destroyed it. It was another constellation, another angel that destroyed it. So if that's true, so serve that angel or that constellation because that's a stronger one. But, but keep it here. Don't go there. Don't go to Hashem. Go keep it here. And let's create a physical embodiment. Let's create a golden calf. And that's the, option. That's the conclusion right here. Therefore, therefore, the mixed multitude advised the Jews to make a molten calf with the idea of entangling them in the worship of Taurus as to their thinking it had prevailed. And again, the word entangling them sounds like it was some devious plot. It wasn't. It was just the way they thought. The way they thought was, it wasn't like, ooh, let's get the Jew, let's, let's trap people into... It was, it was really thinking from a place of honesty or from, from a cynical place, like, oh, come on, it's not really God. It was the angel. It was the, the, the sign of Taurus. So that's the strong sign. That prevailed over Aries. So, so serve Taurus. Serve the, serve the bull. Serve the calf. Create a molten calf. That's what happened. And again, this explains 
This answers the question we asked all the way at the beginning. Not, not the first question, but one of the questions we asked all the way at the beginning. I think it was either in chapter 1 or 2 of the discourse. Many months ago we asked this question. The question was simply, how could the Jews make such a ridiculous mistake? They received the Torah, they had seen the plagues, they had, experienced, they had seen everything. They had seen all the miracles. They're creating a golden calf. They're bowing down to a calf made of gold. They're saying, this is the God that took us out, this is the power that took us out of Egypt. What? A golden calf? They knew there was no golden calf. They knew there was no calf leading them out of Egypt. Or did they? Or did they? Now the answer is no. They were told that, look, Egypt has a star, and there's a neighboring star that prevailed over that star. And again, just cut and, you know, just replace, replace the stars with whatever, right? I thought it was this person or that force that had power, and then that fell, but it's not God or whatever it is. It's, it's some other force. It's some other you know, coincidence. Yeah. You know, one thing you asked is, how, how could it be so easy? But well, no matter how miraculous it all seemed to them, it was all very new. It had just happened, right? And these kinds of beliefs where the beliefs of constellations, I'm guessing, tell me if I'm right, were very entrenched. Right? Very, very entrenched. Long standing. Through history. I mean, yeah, they're still here today. They're yeah, still here today. There's a, in my opinion, uh, an extension of that. You know, Christ is the Lamb of God. So this idolatry persists. And, and I'm, I'm going to take it a step further to say that it's, it's not even... I think we're getting too literal with the stars or whatever. And I, I appreciate what you're saying, which is like, it's, it was a belief that it was entrenched. I'm saying the form that it took then was, was the way it was entrenched, and even to today it might be entrenched. Other. The point, though, is it's not really about the label that you put on it. It's the concept that you're saying it's, not, it's nothing higher than the here and now. The concept is brand new to them. Right, they, right, right they exactly. The concept of this notion of I'm saying we also grow up with this. Right. Even if we don't even if we're not astrologers and even if we're not dabbling in that, we also grow up in everything is in the here and now. Right? And if I want something I gotta work hard and it comes from, you know, money and power and, and politics and that's where everything happens. That's where all, all that's where the world exists in those areas. Money, power, politics, etc. That's where everything exists. That's how we grow up. We don't call it astrology. It's not stars. But that's, what, that's where we grow. And so we say, oh, no, 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 it's God. God intervenes. God can help. Prayer is powerful. And, and we may feel that. And then, as I said before, the cynic says, oh, come on, really? You really believe that? You, you're not sure that it was because, you know, a medical miracle. You're, you're sure it was a miracle? And it wasn't just a misdiagnosis or something that, or, or just something changed in the ground and the medication worked? You sure it was a miracle? And you're like, oh, I don't know, maybe, well, maybe you're right. Maybe everything just, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe God doesn't heal. Maybe God is not involved. Maybe everything just exists in the here and now. Maybe. I don't know. I, th- I thought I believed, but now you're telling me, but now, you know, maybe you're right. And so we don't even have to use the word stars. Astrology, signs. Cut that out. I say, you could or you couldn't. I'm saying, then that's, that's the form that it took. But for us, we also have the same challenges. We have the things that we know, or the things that we've been taught to know or, or, or think that we know, which is stuff exists here. Then the things that we believe in the faith. And the challenge is when we're, we're kind of reaching, we're kind of you know, holding on to some faith, you know, it's easy to say for ourselves to say or for others to tell us, nah, it's not that. It's nothing higher than something else that happened here. It's all here. It's all here. That's the challenge. So, you know, what's the answer to the challenge? As I said before, it's about constantly 
being on edge and recognizing that this challenge is going to be a constant challenge. It's knowing that... Don't, don't allow the mixed multitude to catch you by surprise. Know that it's coming. Know that it's coming. And not to say that if you have... Uh, questions, you know, if you if you have doubts, if you have questions, you know, then that that's a that's an evil thing, that's a negative thing. We're gonna, but it's a real thing. It's a real. It's a part of reality. We have moments of faith and moments of challenge in which we have questioning. The point is, the more we're we're conscious, the more we're aware of everything that's happening, the more we're the, the more prepared we are to weather this the challenges of faith and to come out the other end stronger than we were before. And that's, that's really the upshot of all this. So how could the Jews f- worship a golden calf? How could they not worship a golden calf? Right? When everything they know exists here down, and suddenly they're like ex- expected to extend and believe in something higher, and then they're told, I have a good explanation how everything happened. I watched the Discovery Channel, and they were able to explain how all the plagues happened. How naturally how all the plagues happened. So you're like, okay. So how could they not worship the golden calf? And again, it just, just look at our own lives. It's the same drama replays itself. The, the thing that I want to point out is, number one, we shouldn't judge the ancient Jews who fell into the golden calf, into that worship, because it's the, pro, it's, it's the challenge that, that continuously occurs. On the contrary, the lesson is how we have to expect the challenge and how we have to, you know, in whichever way, try to strengthen ourselves and be stronger. That's, and, and come out stronger the other side. That's all chapter four. Chapter five is really... Getting to, getting to to the to the point of this whole discourse, which is how, where the feminine, where women play a role in this. Why is it that when it came to the golden calf, only the men were susceptible to this? All of what we've been talking about, right? That the the the, the cynicism, Amalek, the doubts, the the signs. Only the men fell in this challenge, and not the women. Why is that? Where do the souls of women come from? The feminine souls. Where do they come from on high? And how that better prepares the feminine energy, the feminine soul, to weather the challenges of faith. And what men can learn from the feminine soul. This is all next week and the next few weeks. Chapter 5, the last chapter. So, hope to see everyone next week. A few very quick announcements.